You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. Bob Vacker, my friend. How you been, Bob? You staying warm? Yeah, I'm trying to. I yeah. tell you what, I put a heavy, heavy shirt on today, and I went outside, and I said, well, that's not enough. So I went back inside and put a vest on. You're in the valley right now, right, Bob? You down here? Yeah, right here in my county. I'm yeah. sitting here in my office over at the BMW dealership on North 10th. Yeah. Better here than what? Normally you spend time uh, what in the mountains near the Colorado? Most <laughs> freezing out no, there right now. Yeah. All right. Well, it's good to good to have you back home. Well, thank you. You and I have a conversation on you know appropriately on a day where we hear that the United Auto Workers strike might be over, potentially coming to an end. At least everybody's back to work. I want to get your thoughts real quick. Uh, your opinion on this UAW strike? Good or bad? Uh, do we improve, you know, the brands after this? Um, you know, what what was your thought of, of this UAW strike? I think uh, I'll be truthful with you, and this is just my personal opinion, so doesn't bear any weight with anybody. But uh, I think it's catastrophic. Uh, it leaves the uh, automakers no wiggle room. Uh, you know, they did they tried this one back in two thousand eight, and they bankrupted General Motors, and they bankrupted Chrysler. And uh, I think it's going to go that way again. You know, they just got, they just built their cash reserves up. They're starting all this investment and in research and electric vehicles, batteries, a, a great new product. And it's all come about because they've had money. And this is really going to tighten it up. And I know General Motors and I, and I know Ford is too. They've canceled some plans for battery plants. They've canceled some plans. They're pushing back on the electric vehicles. So, I think you're going to see all of that slow down, and they're going to have to look at their cash flow. Uh, I just, I, I think it's not going to work. You know, they're raising the prices on some of these vehicles already. Where you know, uh, you, you can't afford them, they're, and they're going to have to put incentives on these trucks so they're not going to sell. And and uh, you know, with all these pay raises, everything else they're having to give, are they going to have enough money to put incentives on these vehicles? Yeah. If not. Uh, they're just sitting, and they're sitting on the lots. More of an auto industry existential question, Bob. Uh, you don't have to answer many of this if you don't want to talk about it. Just move on. But what, I, from somebody who's been in the industry, man, you've been front lines of, of sales and ownership for the longest time. You talk to some of these big wigs uh, from Detroit. Why, if the unions are so powerful and so punitive, and so punishing and expensive, and, and they have the international market where they could, I don't know, maybe build more in uh, Mexico or never before seen places like Central America, South America, places like that. Why does top management stay with the unions and they're beholden to the unions? They, they're they hurt by the unions in this country who, you know, they bite the hand that feeds them. Why, why do you think that in this free trade this more worldwide free trade environment, they don't set up more factories and more affordable markets for for labor. Why do they stick with, with the UAW? Well, I think you see, you see a lot of your manufacturing facilities moving to the south, Alabama, Mississippi, South Carolina. Yeah, North right Carolina. to work states. That's what, yeah, yeah that, that's what you're seeing already. Yeah. I, I was very, very, and this is just me, so... I'm not quoting anybody, but I'm, I was very surprised to see that they were going to do a battery plant in Michigan or a, a you know, a, a new electric vehicle plant in Michigan. They're just getting no cooperation. 
and uh, th- this isn't going to work. And uh, you know, and you see all this stuff. But I, I think General Motors they jumped out on way out ahead on this electric vehicle. I think that uh, you know Biden is pumping everybody, and, and they're already backing off. Everybody's starting to back on this yes, cruise sir. and this cell. Yeah. It's not working. You know, I tell you, I drive a um, I'm driving one of the new electric Hummers, best vehicle by far I've ever driven. Love it. And hell, I've been driving it two months. I hadn't even charged put it on charge, you know. But they're great if you, if you you know driving back and forth to work. But you're going to have to have two vehicles. But there's so many improvements they need to make in these vehicles and the charging stations and make those available. They they jump they jumped way ahead of themselves, and, and uh, I I think it's just going to be a catastrophe. I, I really do. I know none of the General Motors people that I, and that I've talked to. Uh, they they don't they don't want to talk about it, which tells you they probably don't have anything positive to say. But you know you you got to have a partnership somewhere 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 this the UAW and General Motors and Ford and Chrysler have to develop a partnership where yeah. they all work together yeah. to develop better vehicles and work together to keep the price down. Yeah, and uh, that that doesn't seem to be happening. You know. Yeah, from Bert Ogden Motors, friend of the station, friend of. The entire valley. It's from Bob Vacker, and we're talking. We're getting a status report on the auto industry, and now that the hopefully the UAW strike is done, uh, hopefully these assembly lines are beginning to ship product. Was inventory for any of any of your brands was inventory negatively affected as a result of of the strike? Maybe, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I don't think. Okay. I don't, I, in our stores, not so much, but because we had looked at the, we've been, I've been through about two of these before. And, uh, you know, they were just getting everything back online, and we were taking a lot of inventory. In fact, truthfully, we're a little bit over-inventoried on some of our car lines because we just took and took and took with the expectations of a, a, you know, of a strike. So it's, it's going to be if it, if it doesn't get corrected. Because, you know, even if they come back online, some of these plants that have been down, uh, it'll take two or three, four weeks to get them back in line. And then you've got to get your suppliers back in line. And, they, you know, they've laid off a lot of people. So it, it's going to be a while to crank this thing back up. So uh, uh, I'm just hoping, hoping that we have a really good finish in November, December. October for us probably turned out to be one of the worst months we've had it is the worst month we've had this year hmm. and it's the first year our sales have dropped back from our previous year and uh, a why, lot of why would you say with, bob that was the issue if, if inventory was not a problem what was going on pricing interest rates are so high hmm. prices are so high they're going to have to come in. You know, the people people can't afford to buy these vehicles, so what they're going to have to do is come in with some incentives and to, to move them. And that's the way it, only way people can afford it. You know, it's just got it's just got so expensive, and people can't afford these monthly payments. Bob Facker from Bird Ogden joining us. Um, he d- represents so many different brands, so many different lines, but the American line, GM, Ford, um, you know, some of these um, other vehicles especially GM and Ford, their pullback from the EV brands, Bob, I, I, I suppose, and Kenneth, you kind of touched on this, they could use the hundreds upon hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that they lost as a result of the strike. They can use that as the excuse, say, well, we can't move forward with EV plans because, you know, first we were trying to make them profitable, we were making an investment, and we don't have the extra cash mm-hmm. to invest into something like that. So there you go. That, that's the out. 
that they can show Biden, anybody else, like, well, we can't move forward as fast yeah. as we wanted to in the past. Well, I don't. Th- I tell you what, that's not an excuse. That's reality. The reality is this strike has cost them so much money. The reality is that all these demands are going to cost them so much money. They're not going to have the capital to yeah. continue to develop any new products. And that's what happened to them the last two times, and they got in the hole. And, you know, we see so many different things. And, and uh, I just saw in this morning's paper, uh, Toyota just set a new sales record worldwide, okay? The, the Americans, we we got to get competitive. And, we're, you know, you talk about foreign markets, China, Mexico, wherever. But when you look at the disruptions in supply lines and stuff, what I'd like to see is more and more stuff coming into this back to this country. And that's what we need. We put everybody yes, to work. Yes, sir. But, Mike, but we all have to work together and say, hey, where are we on this thing? And and it, I'm going to tell you, it's scary. You know, we're building uh, four new dealerships and, and I, remodeling and rebuilding. And be truthful with you, had I known a lot of this, I may not have done it. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm committed now, so I, don't, I can't turn around. But it, it's scary. I mean, it really, I think it's going to tighten up if we don't see a, if we don't see some incentives on vehicles, and and it's going to hurt. And it's, the whole economy's starting to. I don't know if you how many people you talk to, but it, the economy's starting to gear down a little bit. Yeah, Bob Vacker, Bert Ogden, um, dealerships all across South Texas. Some might say that the solution might be as easy as asking the big three to set up their factories outside of mandatory union states and set up more factories in. Like you said, the South set up more factories right. in Texas, right to work states. But that UAW uh, union uh, leadership is so powerful. First thing they would do as soon as they open up a factory is they'd be encouraging, they'd be working within the workforce to to demand. But did you know they call a, a vote? I, I don't know if you noticed the settlement on this strike. Then the new battery plants, the new electric vehicle plants, all have to have union labor now. Yeah. So which going to be so all they, they they've taken full charge of all that let me give you an interesting one i just read yesterday you know toyota's been talking about <clears throat> was electric the way to go <clears throat> or do we do uh hydrogen cars and i just read yesterday there was a, in france they just made a discovery they're drilling some wells and they just hit a uh, hydrogen fuel hydrogen and they say billions and billions and billions of cubic feet of hydrogen, wow. which could, which we could use to power that whole country. So, you know, forget natural gas. And this hydrogen is a clean burn because what comes from the burn of hydrogen, and basically, water. you know, is water. <laughs> yeah. So this, this is, I found that very interesting. And the way they came about that, uh, there was an individual in Africa, they had drilled a well, and he was smoking Imagine they're smoking and working on the well and it exploded. Well, what it was, it was a high gas. Oh, I'm sorry. Water. Yeah, he had a bad day. Yeah. I shouldn't be laughing. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, and then so these 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 people, these scientists in, in, in France said, well, he's got something there. So they started, it's in France, in some region of France, and they just hit a couple of big wells. But you know what this is going to do to the natural gas market? The supply and demand out of you know the Middle East, Russia, everywhere. It's phenomenal. So we're going to go somewhere with all this. But you know what? It takes so much money to develop it. You know, it's just it's a, all of us have to sit back yeah. and say, hey, hey, what do do? You know, it might be. And just looking at the just the mechanism itself, you know, you compare 
an electric electric vehicle and all the special mm-hmm. minerals and components that that go into creating the batteries for these EVs. Compare that to the motor, the engine for a hydrogen vehicle. I would imagine that the compare there'd be no comparison. I think it, it, just for me, the uneducated, I think it'd be easier to build a hydrogen engine because you don't need the rare earth minerals like m- numerous yeah. rare earth minerals in order to yeah. develop the batteries. It might be easier to go the hydrogen route. Yeah, well, think think about this. Like that Hummer, I'm driving an electric Hummer, okay? It's a demo, so they wanted me to drive it. Those batteries weigh 4,000 pounds in that vehicle. Well, the, the wear and tear, think of the wear and tear on the road when you're driving on the road. Nobody thinks of that. Think about when we have to dispose of those batteries. So when you look at the, the impact on the, uh, and the ecology, you know, technology in that world, environment, the impact, it's still there. So we, that may be not that may not be the solution. And it's going to take a little bit more research, and it won't happen in my lifetime. Yeah. And a little bit more thought to go into this and see what we're going to do. But I mean, the great thing about the electric vehicle. You don't have all the uh, maintenance. You don't have the oil changes. You don't have all that. You know, it's a very simple process. Yeah. So this thing well, goes somewhere. Well, I, I know what you're going to get, Janet, for Christmas. At least one thing uh, that'd be a, a new drive, a new driveway, because with that four thousand. A four thousand pound monstrosity, but that thing's going to tear up your driveway and the road nearby yeah. pretty, pretty soon. You know, you just think about all this. No, I, a lot of thought hasn't gone. I think a lot of thought is not going going into a lot. Everybody jumped on the bandwagon. Hey, let's slow down. Let's give it some thought. Let's see what we have to do. You know. Well, now the market so. speaks. The market has spoken. GM and Ford mm-hmm. to throttling back on the EV. Um, route at least they're rethinking it because they, they need to make money you don't make money you don't pay the bills and, and forget if you're a union member ain't no check coming for anyone if you guys can't uh, if those guys can't keep it in, in the black um just the final thought brothers we head into thanksgiving christmas all that what do you want to tell me about all the gang over at the, at the dealerships uh i'm sorry my guess Everybody, I'm giving out Christmas presents. I started giving out Christmas presents to my managers today. And because we're not going to be here Christmas, we're going to spend it with the grandkids. So I'm walking around saying, Merry Christmas, you know, <laughs> th- Merry, Happy Thanksgiving. So I guess today's Halloween. We'll be celebrating <laughs> well, Halloween. You should have dressed up as Santa Claus then, handing <laughs> all the presents uh, today. <laughs> I didn't want to. I didn't want to. I didn't want to make sure I didn't uh, dress up as a Grinch. So <laughs> Bob, thank you. Uh, uh, hug and a yes, kiss to, to Janet, and look forward to getting an update, status okay. report, in, in a few months. Okay. That's uh, Bob Becker from all the Bird Ogden dealerships here in, in South Texas. This is the Sergio Show. You're always on the go. Obviously pretty busy. Busy with work. Picking up my kids from school. From work to kids are running errands. Your entire day is a hands-on, never-ending frenzy of activity. Luckily, getting the news is now voice activated. Just say, Alexa, play 710-KURB. I'd like to know what's going on in my world. I gotta know what's going on in my city. Putting the smart in your smart speaker. I'm getting my news from you and my information. For the latest news and to find out what's happening in rich, clear audio. Just say, Alexa, play 710 KURV.
You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. He was a manager and a business owner. Of all the people that are working for you over at your team, how many people would you say are actively engaged in what you guys are doing for a living? You know, trying to get that paycheck, trying to close the sale, trying to deliver, you know, all those things that, that you need to do, produce and manufacture. How many people at your job site, at your job, are actively engaged? Well, according to one study, roughly one in four are actively engaged. That's when I saw that number. Said that's like mind blowing. I, I got to ask somebody. You know, let's let's toss this around. Seventy three percent of employees are either ambivalent or disengaged these days. Man, I hope that's not the case over at at your company. Let me bring in author of Swirling the Drain, Why Small Businesses Fail and How to Stop the Leaks. I welcome Brent Garrett. Brent, who's of, of the companies that only have one in four employees actively engaged, whose fault is it? You know, I, that's a great question. I'm going to put it on the ownership or the leadership or the manager first because I think it all goes back to the hiring process. Um, and does the company or, or the leader um, do a good job of communicating the vision and mission of the company? Let's assume that they do, and they've done a great hire. Okay. Um, it's that seventy percent we've got to we've got to really be concerned about. And, and you know, just to get the conversation going, this is pretty strong language from a guy who's owned and run businesses for thirty-five years. If you're not figuring out how to get that 20% of actively disengaged folks, this is the 20% of the 70 you spoke of, um, out of your company, it could contaminate and kill your whole culture yeah. and, and really have a, a devastating effect on I was about to and say, that, that's a cancer, man. I don't see how company survives with that type of attitude in oh, the yeah. workforce. Now, the quality of that top one out of four can pull that other 50% up and get them more engaged. So you ask the question, where, whose fault is it? Um, I, in the hiring process, we've got to understand, are we attracting team members that are humble, hungry, smart? Do they, do they have not only a plan and career path for themselves and a vision inside your company, um, but do they see themselves, you know, two to three years out doing something that's a little better tomorrow than it is today. And those are the folks that are usually active engaged. When you're working towards something, you tend to be more engaged. And I would say that 50% out of the 70 that are either not engaged or actively disengaged. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it's the job of management now that they're on the team to help them have a clear path about their future. You know, for some uh, tuning in right now, depending on what they do for a living, what type of service job or manufacturing job they have, perhaps it's the way that their company is structured. Well, they might be fine with it, just having some warm body show up and move you know, a few lug nuts uh, left and right. Uh, you know, they, they know they have a, a setup where it's just a job and they don't offer much of a, much of a salary and they know they're going to have huge turn, turnover and they're going to dip into that pool. Uh, it, it's not a career. There's, uh, they know that the employees will not be invested. I guess if it works for them, I, you know, more power to you. It, it's just fine. But in order to turn things around, uh, it needs to be like what you said. It, it sh- 
the the opportunity for this to be a career properly compensated, uh, maybe allow the employees to be invested in the company where they there's profit share or they feel like they own stock in the business as well. That might be some of what you could do in order to turn things around and, and eventually reach a realistic number of properly engaged individuals. What would that be, Brent? What's the realistic number? 60, 75 percent engaged? What's realistic? Well, if I talk about 50 percent of the employees are not engaged, um, I think some of the things you just mentioned, some incentive plans, um, if it's in the service industry, it could be a SPIF for outstanding customer service, those types of things that promote and grow your business. Not engaged doesn't necessarily mean that they're a bad employee. It's the actively disengaged that are the problem. Mm. And so you have to make a commitment to um, trade those folks right off the team. The not engaged folks, there are things you can do, but the real challenge is the 30% that are actively engaged. It's their job day in and day out to motivate those who are not engaged. Um, it's, it's that kind of type of leader. So if you're looking at your business and every business looks like this, there are 20% of, there's 20% of your revenue stream that's not the most profitable. If you follow along with me and say that I'm going to I'm going to send my customers that are the 20% that aren't the most profitable, aren't the most desirable off. That gives me the capacity to also make some labor changes. That also brings capacity to bring in new business to the customers I want. That's really where you're, you're, on, the, uh, you're on the KPI side of your business. But it, it stands to reason that if you lose 20% of your labor, you, you, you reduce your non-profitable or less profitable business, your bottom line just becomes strengthened. Then you find the profit to reinvest back into your company and your team. It's a, it is a definite strategy. I think, I think what's most um, revealing about the, this study by Gallup is, is that, hey, you know what? It, this is just a given in a sense that, that this is what we see and it's expensive to your company what kind of negative impact is that bottom 20% doing to your customers, fellow employees, and yeah, your culture? Yeah, It's it, devastating. It's a, it will stunt growth, uh, absolutely, maybe uh, force you to go backwards. Brent Garrett is, is author of Swirling the Drain, Why Small Businesses Fail, How to Stop the Leaks. We're talking about a study that pointed to one in four employees actively engaged in the American workforce, almost, almost three of four employees either ambivalent or disengaged. And you men mentioned the 20% that are a real drag. Boy, they're the dead weight. So outside of output data from an assembly line, which could be easily tracked, uh, sales numbers that can be easily tracked, uh, or um, you know, customer surveys uh, that, you know, quick reaction from the front lines, uh, how do you, how would you quickly identify the 20% that need to be canned? I've owned small businesses for 35 years, and I, I've got good answers for that one. Number one, um, we have four rules in our company. Show up on time, do what you say you're going to do, follow through, and say, say please and thank you. The, the first one, they just don't show up. They're That's not true. dependable. That's true. I mean, they stick out like Absolute a sore throat. You know, there's, there's a difference between under the weather and sick, but under the weather is always going to result in them not coming to work. Yes, sir. Um, productivity is a is a qua and quality 
suffer. You, you're just going to see that their the volume of their work and the quality of their work in comparison to the group is significantly less. And then then they tend to disconnect from coworkers. They don't build relationships that foster a, a great working environment. And and those three, they'll stick out like a sore thumb. You'll find and, and as I'm saying this to you, you're probably thinking about people that you worked with or an environment when you were growing up and you were learning how to work in an environment. Um, or if you're listening, you're in your own work environment going, oh, that's... Okay. That's I got less than 30 seconds, two, my brother. Two. I got less than 30 seconds. Yeah. If you can give me the, the your final thought. Well, my, my final thought is, is that um, make sure that you're in the hiring process. You're asking them, hey, what is your career path? Where do you want to be um, two to three years from now, if they can't answer that question and they don't have a vision for themselves, do okay. not hire them. All right. Do not hire them. Fair enough. Brent, it's a pleasure. We'll look for your book, brother. It sounds uh, fascinating. A Swirling the Drain. Thank you. Why Small Businesses Fail and How to Stop the Leaks. That's author Brent Garrett. This is The Sergio Show. your day with news and interviews important to you with the Valley's Morning News. Weekday mornings starting at 6. Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan bring you the latest headlines and hourly discussions with AccuWeather to get you ready for your day and special guest interviews on topics that affect you and your family. Good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, guys. We'll let you know enjoy the show. It's what you need to start your day. The Valley's Morning News with Sergio Sanchez and Tim Sullivan. Weekday mornings starting at 6 on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. The business write-ups, uh, they point to an increasingly common yet uh, kind of awkward situation at work where the boss, the supervisor, is much younger than the workforce. Jim Cathcart is, is an expert in business and personal development author of more than two dozen books on the issue as well. Jim, I appreciate your time. This is the first time I get to speak hey, with you. happy to be with you. Yes, sir. First time I speak with you, Jim. So tell me a little bit more about you, some of the work that you've done through the years. Okay. I'm, uh, I've been a professional speaker and author for 46 years, done 3,500 convention speeches around the world, written 25 books, been president of the National Speakers Association, and and I play guitar and sing in nightclubs and uh, ride a motorcycle. Well, you've been around for quite some time, Jim. So, and, and, and you're your Old own. Old as dirt. <laughs> well, and you're your own boss. But put yourself in a situation. I am my own boss. Yes, sir. And yep. you're, you're blessed to have done that now. But put yourself in a situation where, you know, you're paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, you kind of enjoy mm -hmm. your career or, or your job. You're clocking in. But, and here comes either a Gen Zer or a millennial, a much, much younger mm -hmm. individual thinks he knows it all, uh, male or female, going to crack the whip on you and the crew at your business, and you're in a situation, as I mentioned at the beginning, that maybe awkward situation where the boss yeah. is really, really, you know, is much, much younger than you are. How would you feel in a situation like that? What would you do in order to make well, sure things work smoothly? I've actually been in that situation in the past. Uh, it, it wasn't a big age gap when it happened to me, but my boss was a little younger than me, 
and a whole lot less savvy about how to successfully work in in a business office. And so I had to learn how to teach my boss how to manage me without offending him and making him feel like I was coming from a higher place and, and being holier than thou. You know, so the, the issue is not really so much an age issue as it is point of view and, and level of uh, skill in working with other people. And so if, if the person got a different set of values, man, first thing you got to do is understand what's important to them and how can you still get the job done, because that's number one, while accommodating their point of view. And don't expect to change them. Just expect to enlighten them a little bit over time, and that, that'll make it a whole lot easier on you if you're the older one. Yeah, quite the challenge for management or ownership to put, the proper manager in place to take care of day-to-day with the workforce and keep everybody rowing in the same direction. Because, you know, if, if it was a function of seniority, well, seniority doesn't necessarily make the best managers. You might have somebody who's been there a long time, but is complete is an idiot or, or, or has, or, or it's not management, it's not management material. You know what I mean? But, but putting mm-hmm. someone in to manage this individual, uh, individuals like like him or her that have been there a, a long time that's still a challenge because you know they're kind of rubbing each other the wrong way any advice uh, for owners yes. or, or managers that that are in a face they're in a situation well, where they need to throw somebody into the pool like that a younger person yeah uh, number one thing is to be clear on whether you're more concerned about the outcome of this endeavor or the process because in a like a bureaucratic situation, a lot of times it's more about dotting the T's and and, and uh, you know dotting the I's and crossing the T's. But that's not what moves the needle. You know, in most businesses, what matters most is what's going to generate new business, uh, strengthen your bond with your existing customers, and get the job done well. Because in times of difficulty. They don't let the productive people go. They let the ones that were merely popular go. Would you recommend in a situation like this, you know, where there might be some turnover and you need to put in some new managers, maybe college educated or maybe, you know, have um, more degrees or a specific type of mm-hmm. uh, of a skill set in a workforce that is a little older, would you recommend to have more, I don't know, like department-wide or company-wide powwows maybe every week or every couple of weeks so everybody has a chance to provide some input and feel like they're providing something, but at the same time they go back to their respective rank when they hit the floor. Yeah, that's an excellent recommendation because it's all about communication. The three essentials for a relationship, any working relationship to be healthy are number one, both parties have to be committed to making this work. Yeah, protect. In the other product. words, commitment to yeah. success of the of the uh, mm-hmm. of the relationship, the working relationship. Number two, it's got to be truthful communication, whether it's good or bad news. And number three, you got to have clear agreements as to what you can expect from each other. And if you've got those three, that that'd be a good working relationship, a good marriage relationship, a good partnership, a good friendship. Yeah, because that's why, in the end, when you have a disjointed operation 
or people just not getting along, you, you wind up paying tens of thousands of dollars to bring a, a, a consultant to do just that, to have the sit down, mm. the honest communication, which I think would be solved if you just have like maybe every two weeks, a sit down, a review, take inventory, bring problems to the table, solutions to the table. Uh, allow everybody to provide uh, some input and then go back and protect the product. And, and, and those conversations from the top leader to emphasize what you, what you just said, everyone's, yeah, pay- it's gotta, it's gotta everyone's be paycheck is dependent on this. We, we all have the livelihood dependent on this company, and everybody's got to protect the product. That's right. Everybody's got to protect it. Yeah, this. and I can give you a quick formula for every meeting you hold with your team, what's new, in other words, what changed since we last talked, What's next? What are you working toward? What's, what's the goal that you're striving to achieve? And what's needed? New, next, needed, and then move on. And that way it doesn't turn into a conversation about a bunch of other things that are unrelated. Yeah, and I bet at these meetings, top leaders that need to make the big decision, they probably figure out who among the ranks are, are the contributors and, and those that are just kind of just getting along or just well, and that, sloshing through. That brings up another point it, it, what's an executive decision and what's a, a staff decision you know if it's if it's just which one goes in which box that's a staff decision executive decision should we use boxes or is this even the right product so keep the decision making at the level that it belongs at and base that on skill and output not on youth and uh, vigor <laughs> Jim, where do folks find you if they'd like to go online? Where they, are you? Oh, I'm the easiest guy in the world to find if you can remember my last name. Cathcart, C-A-T-H-C-A-R-T. Do a search for me on any social media, Jim okay. Cathcart. Jim Cathcart. Thank, Thank you. you, Jim. Be safe, brother. Thank you. This is the Sergio Show. Looking for a job? You do the interview thing, all the pleasantries and the smiles, the handshakes, and maybe even a hug here and there. Everything looks so positive, and then nothing. Silence. Crickets. No phone call, no follow-up. You've been ghosted. Martha Reynolds is a hiring expert. Hey, the interview went so well, and then we didn't get a follow-up call, not even a mention of, you know, the position's been filled or we'd like to consider you for the future. We, we thought we were all buddy-buddy, friends-friends. Friends. What just happened, Martha? You know, unfortunately, I'm hearing stories of this more and more often these days where companies simply ghost candidates. Um, And it's, you know, I'm not really sure why with today's technology, you think it'd be really easy to get back to people. But unfortunately, it's kind of like the dating world. And you think you've had a great first date and then just, you know, nothing on the other end. Yeah, so much for all these reports that all these positions go unfilled. All these positions are open. You'd think that Somebody who, who's hiring people or supposed to be hiring people is so happy with the job interview and you as a candidate that that position would would be filled almost immediately. They'd hire you on the spot, you think. But I, I think the fact that they don't hire you on the spot, this, this is what I wanted to mention. The fact that they don't hire you on the spot, if everything's so, you know, rainbows and sunshines and lollipops and everybody's so happy with each other. The fact that they don't hire you on the spot, you did, you just, you didn't get the job. That's that's what it says to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. You would think because the economy is the way it is and, and, you know, you hear all these reports about how difficult it is to fill positions, you would think people would hire you right on the spot or at least get back to you and let you know that it wasn't a fit and, you know, maintain that good reputation that they have as an employer that you maybe want to work for in the future. 
Do you think maybe this is HR hiring folks who hire people? Maybe they're just getting back at <laughs> the fact that they they've been ghosted because this works this works both ways. It does work both ways. And I've actually seen a lot more of that in the past six months than I have ever seen before where candidates simply um, have so many options and different, you know, job opportunities that they're ghosting companies almost as much as companies are ghosting employees. And if that happens, is that company worth working for? You know, I mean, it really does make you sit back and question. Um, it's kind of like dating. You know, how much leeway do you give somebody at first? Because they're usually putting their best foot forward. Because I'll I tell you what, I, I can, and this is from personal experience from, from some time back. <clears throat> I gave it a my all. I know I was the top candidate. But then silence. Crickets. Silence. Nothing. And then I go back and check the openings, and they quadrupled, quintupled the number of openings available at that place. I'm going, wow, I wonder what that says of the culture at that business where maybe they're cleaning house, they're ripping everything apart. And I, and I, you know, I'm wiping the sweat off my brow going, whew, man, that's, I came close to maybe jumping into, uh, you know, from the, from the uh, the pan into the fire in that situation where right you maybe dodged a bullet right there. it didn't say very much when 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 I saw that like all these openings all of a sudden yeah yeah thank God you know <laughs> no offer came I in. think it's important for candidates and for employers to really manage their reputation through the process and ghosting people on either side uh, you know it doesn't. It doesn't say a lot for you. I mean, just the courtesy of an employer saying, hey, we filled the position. Thanks so much. We really appreciated your time. An email is easy. And on the candidate side, you know, saying, you know, thanks for the job offer or thanks for the interview, but I'm not interested. It's, you know, it's easy. You can do it via email. Um, and it really does help protect your reputation. Thank you, Martha. Call you again. You be safe. Thanks so much. Have a good morning. Hiring pro Martha Reynolds. This is The Sergio Show. News Talk 710 KURV. When news breaks, we break in. Stay alert and listen to the weather forecast. We need to be aware and alert to what's going on. Breaking news means it's happening now. And we mean now. Breaking news underway right now. Breaking news on News Talk 710 KURV means we're bringing you the news as it happens. We have a In this particular instance, we are in receipt of information. When news breaks, we'll break in. Count on News Talk 710 KURV. You're listening to the best of the Sergio Show. Here's Sergio. From the American Principles Project, I welcome back John Schweppe. Want to get your quick thoughts, John, on the what seems to be, and we can you know, use uh, Christopher Ray's comments recently before lawmakers. The deteriorating, seems to be the deteriorating security situation in our country. I just thank God we wake up and go to bed another day in this country and we don't hear about some big terrorist attacks. I want to get your thoughts. Yeah, well, it's horrific. I mean, the, the unfortunate thing is under President Biden, we've seen uh, the world, you know, basically set on fire. Uh, you have the, the, the fight in Ukraine, you now have this 
uh, open war in Israel. And, you know, of course, that's going to have an impact on the United States when we're, uh, you know, allies in, in those fights. And, uh, and we have this porous southern border. And we've actually had you know, some Republican senators on the Intelligence Committee have talked about the, the possibility of Hezbollah cells here uh, in the U.S., Hezbollah being the uh, Iran-funded terrorist group. So, you know, it, it's, it's dangerous stuff. And, and unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be getting better, and this administration doesn't seem to be that focused on the problem. I'd like to, and I mentioned this to a, a local police chief, just tossing the issue around on security and soft targets. You know, we've got Christmas and parades and all stuff coming up pr- pretty soon. Uh, for all the funding that is celebrating you know, billions of dollars for the IRS and 87,000 employees, and knowing the situation we have now, uh, I, I'm surprised I haven't heard anyone champion the cause to provide funding for you know, more local police funding, maybe a cooperation between intelligence operation between feds, promoting that between feds and local police, just to make sure... We're covering all the bases, and everybody's properly informed of uh, security-based or terrorism-based investigations that are taking place behind the scenes. We know the problem is at the border. We know the flood is still coming, the tsunami. We, the, the getaway situation is awful. They testified to all this up in D.C., these so-called you know, homeland security people. Well, where's the follow-up to this to make sure that we reinforce in the interior? No one's championing that conversation. No, I think you make a good point, and and Republicans would be wise to to listen to it because, you know, that's ultimately what it comes down to is we want to make sure we have uh, more police, more border security, more border patrol agents. Um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the, the funding has been going to the three-letter agencies, and uh, you know, we talk about uh, Christopher Ray uh, and his agency, but the the reality is they've been focused on, I think, the wrong problems. You know, they've been focused on. Uh, parents at school board meetings or, you know, uh, dumb, you know, stupid young racists uh, posting online in their basements. Um, and and I, I just don't think that's really where the, the focus should be. These, you know, we saw the, the terror attacks in Israel were incredibly sophisticated. Um, they were funded, you know, they were, they were ready to go, and they killed a lot of innocent people. And, you know, the fear here is if that happened here, would we even be close to ready for it? And I don't think we would be. Republican commentator John Schweppe is my guest. Another message that used to belong to the Republicans, you could, man, you could uh, bet the mortgage that they would be championing the cause of a, of a balanced budget, reigning in government spending. Maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's because polling data shows that the electorate, they really don't think about stuff like this. They don't really, despite the fact we're $33 trillion in debt, there's polling data out there that shows that people are not paying attention. They really they they don't seem to care about stuff like that. So here we are: international wealth, welfare, billions to Israel, billions to Ukraine, billions for you know fighting cartels in, in Mexico, billions left and right for, to other nations, and we're taking our great grandkids' money to pay for all this. No balanced budget, no reining in of spending. And my question to you, John, is: Why do we continue this culture of irresponsible and potentially lethal spending in our country? Where is it that we lost, maybe never even considered, all this international welfare? Why not make it into a, a, at least a, a friendlier form of lending? Where, okay, uh, hey, Ukraine, how about you pay us back in corn for the next hundred years after you win your war with Russia? Something like that. No one ever thinks like that. They're just writing checks left and right. Just, just crazy. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think part of the problem is our, our politicians, frankly, are a little bit selfish. They're focused entirely on their next election and, and what kinds of committees they can get on and, and not necessarily on, you know, the future uh, of our kids and grandkids. But I will tell you, you know, it does seem like the chicken's coming home to roost on the debt. And we're seeing that with inflation right now. Um, it's not going away as, as best as the Federal Reserve tries. And so, you know, I, I think we really have to have that conversation. I mean, $33 trillion, you know, the interest rate's up to almost 5%. So we're paying interest on that at 5%. I mean, that's, that's pretty crazy stuff. Yeah. It's a lot of money we're wasting. Yeah. And uh, if we don't get this under control, we are going to have a horrible debt crisis that uh, is going to affect normal people probably more than, frankly, corporations and rich people. Yeah, just to use one sentence, I think it's an easily digestible message where you can say to the potential voters. Hey, people, uh, this is out of control. We need to rein in spending. We need to start cutting a lot of this international welfare, maybe make it into a form of loan or, and payback, something like that. We'll get these notes paid in the future because we are spending the, the easy message, the easy sentence. We are spending more in interest on this debt than we are in national defense as far as the Pentagon budget. And that is unacceptable. I think that would wake up a lot of people. But anyway, I'll give you the final thought. No, I think that's absolutely right. And ordinary people understand this because, you know, we have credit card debt, right? We we know what it's like to be on the hook with a ridiculous interest rate where you can't pay it back. And that's the, the American government right now, $33 trillion, you know, 5% of that, you know, we're paying, as you said, it's bigger than the defense budget. It's almost a trillion, I think, maybe a little more than that now, yes, sir. Uh, a year. So that's we're scary. not going to, we're not going to be able to climb out of that. Yeah, that is very scary. All right, pal. Thank you for your time. Director of Policy, hey, yes, sir. Uh, Director of Policy, Government Affairs at American Principles Project is John Schweppe. This is the Sergio Show.